G'day, I'm Rowan Mackey, and I'm joined by my dad, clinical psychologist Chris Mackey, and this is Psych Spiels and Silver Linings. G'day, Dad. How are you going today? Good, thanks, Rowan. Good to be with you again. Absolutely. Now, I'm excited to be chatting to you today about a topic that I'll put my hand up and say it's an area that I maybe don't have a natural strength in. And it's an area that I think is really worth focusing on at the moment, and it's the area of self-compassion. So do you want to just give us a little bit of a broad overview in terms of what we're going to be talking about today? Well, it's a common theme related to mental health that certainly is very relevant to many of my clients, but also the broader society and how we try to get a balance between achieving goals and being conscientious and ambitious, if you like, and also looking after ourselves in certain ways. And so getting that balance is relevant to issues of burnout that we've talked about before, but just our general mental health and well-being. How can we strive but not overdo it? And it's something that we touched on a little bit on the podcast recently in terms of, I think you and I have maybe been a little bit guilty of using the phrase a little bit too much at times, that idea of cutting yourself some slack. And I was having a conversation with someone recently and we were talking about the idea that it's actually a bit of an ambiguous term and it doesn't necessarily mean anything. So one of the things that I'm going to be looking forward to today is really developing on that idea of what it actually means to cut yourself some slack. Yes, and look, I must admit, it is a phrase that I would use a fair bit and have some sense of what it might mean to myself. But just like you're highlighting, it is somewhat ambiguous. But it relates to broad themes of, again, this balance between aiming for achievement and looking after ourselves, you know, some kind of managing with stress and getting a balance in that direction. So it also relates to broad themes of perfectionism which is a common source of difficulties for people who might be overly driven, and self-compassion, which is more looking at ways we look after ourselves. That can get out of balance. And I think at the moment, it's particularly hard to find a balance with some of these things because there's extra stresses, whether it be at work, at home. That idea of almost prioritising your self-care is, I think, as important as ever. Yes, and it's interesting, a different emphasis, I think, that's coming in this year with people talking about mental health and also talking about, say, achievement of school students. This year, more than any other year, people are talking explicitly about people not having to put too much pressure on themselves about their school achievement and how they go about that, that in fact, people might need to prioritise their well-being as a key issue. Now, you don't often hear that emphasised so much. You might hear people encouraging achievement, but then also saying engaging in a bit of self-care. But I think this year we're hearing the priority sometimes expressed a little bit the other way around. First of all, look after yourself in a number of ways. Sure, look to achieve but allow for the fact that we might not be able to go about things the way that we usually would. So allow for ourselves to be not quite as on top of things as we might usually hope to be. It's interesting. That's come up a couple of times this year in terms of, I think it was Justin Trudeau, the Canadian Prime Minister, who said something similar in terms of recognise that we're not necessarily going to have our full resources at the moment. So it's worth not necessarily aiming for that 100% mark. But 
I suppose at the same time, there's a lot of people who that notion of, I suppose, taking your foot off the gas and having a more static approach doesn't necessarily resonate with them a lot. And that's where I think this is a really good topic because the idea of self-compassion, I suppose, what I've come to think of it as is a really active approach to recovery and learning how to have a really active approach to recovery. So I think that's one of the things I'm going to really be looking forward to talking to you today about is learning some ways that we can feel that we're still applying ourselves in some ways. It's not as if we're taking our foot off the gas or being lazy in different ways, but it's maybe just looking at different ways of prioritizing our our self-care and our health over maybe achievement at different times. Yes, so it relates to broad themes as well to do with our mental health. One notion is allowing ourselves to be vulnerable, not having to be in control so much all the time. And it's ultimately about balance, finding a balance in how we go about things. And another general way that I tend to put this is looking at a coping approach. Sometimes we have to muddle through, just get by whatever way we can, as opposed to a mastery approach, trying to be in control on top of things. If we aim for too much mastery, when it's more realistic to aim for coping and getting by, we can actually make it more difficult for ourselves. Well, I think before we go too much further, we should say a little bit about the episode title today. So we've called today's episode Drive, Soothing and Threat, Seeking a Synergy of Systems. So Dad, it's a bit of a funny episode title to be talking about self-compassion, but why is this the title for today's episode? Well, it comes down to looking at some core coping principles And looking at that, we look at some basic ways that human beings function. So we're looking at basic patterns of behaviour which are guided by evolution. And there are three systems of behaviour that relate to evolution that can get out of balance with each other. Drive, soothing and the threat system. So the, the drive system is about achievement where we're really driving forward to achieve goals. We have in mind what we're looking to do. We're looking to be conscientious about things. We're looking to be ambitious. It's very much about goal setting and achievement. But then there's a soothing system. And we can understand how nurturing would be very important for evolution, being able to nurture our young, being able to soothe others, but also being able to soothe ourselves and being open to other people offering us nurturing and soothing. This is also what helps evolution. And the third one, of course, is the threat system. So fight, flight, freeze responses. Those kind of responses that when we face threat or danger, help us respond and get to safety. Now, if the other systems get out of balance, too much drive, too little soothing, then we're going to have that threat system kicking in too much and too often. And that's where we'll experience chronic stress. And we'll talk about some of the different aspects of that later on. And as you touched on a little bit before, I think before the COVID pandemic, we had such a focus in our culture on achievement that it could be quite easy for these systems to get out of balance. For example, many people work, you know, quite often, quite into the night at times, and potentially they're prioritising elements of their drive system over others. Yes, and I think if we think of our school system, for example, how much it rewards achievement, 
how much has been based on marks and the notion of, well, if you succeed and get these kind of marks, then you can get into this course, this will help you get this kind of job. There's been so much emphasis on that in the past, but I think that there's a real shift in that kind of emphasis at the moment, as we talked about earlier, promoting well-being a little bit further. But there is a cultural kind of goal overall and strong rewards, strong incentives, strong emphasis on achievement. And that's one area that we see with many of our clients can get out of balance. Well, it's interesting. I heard a comment recently on a podcast I was listening to, and it was quite a flippant comment, but it kind of resonated with me a little bit because it was something I hadn't necessarily heard emphasized before. And it was someone, I think they were talking about Jeff Bezos, and they made the comment that, you know, he's obviously a very successful person in his professional life, <laughs> in the sense of obviously alluding to the fact that although he's, you know, he's multi, multi billionaire, he's making so much money a day at the moment, it's ridiculous. But at the same time, He's had a marriage breakup in recent times and potentially struggles in some other areas of his life that he hasn't been able to prioritise through having to work so much. Yes, and for a more local example, actually I wrote an article on this some years ago about Mark Burris, who came to speak in Geelong at a business breakfast. And I was very interested how he emphasised the notion of virtues because positive psychology talks about character strengths and virtues. And it was interesting to hear a business leader highlight the notion of virtues. And he even acknowledged the notion of balance with virtues, such as if you have too much courage, that might be recklessness. But I thought it was very interesting when he started to talk about persistence and leadership. So his topic in that breakfast gathering was largely around about leadership and persistence. And he referred to a book he'd written called Whatever It Takes. I thought, now this is an interesting title for someone who's talked about a balance with virtues. The book suggests, the book title suggests, whatever it takes, keep on striving. And then he gave some personal examples. He described he tends to get up at 4.30am each day and that he would return people's emails, his workers' emails, he would return staff emails at 11 o'clock at night because he thought, well, if his staff would send him emails at 11 o'clock at night, including on weekends, he should at least show he's prepared to do the same. Well, I thought this is remarkable. If we're talking about balance with virtues, where's the balance in that kind of persistence, if you like? And I thought that was a recipe for overdoing the drive system, underemphasizing the notion of self-compassion or a soothing system, whatever it takes. So not surprisingly, he talked about having quite some difficulty in relationships that might have been a consequence of having that level of drive. So whilst talking about getting a balance, I think he was modelling the idea of going right out of balance with achievement and not seeing the irony in that or not seeing the conflict. And I think that's how much our culture tends to reward achievement and drive to the point of forgetting about the other aspects that bring more of a real balance in life. And I think with everything that's going on at the moment, we're also given the opportunity to look at our priorities a little bit more in the sense that, as you suggest there, culturally, potentially, we were being steered in a certain direction in terms of prioritising achievement. Whereas with everything that's going on, it gives us an opportunity to, I suppose, ask ourselves whether that is the right recipe for us. 
And I suppose one of the things I'm really interested to talk to you about today is the interplay between these systems and a little bit how they work, because I think the more that we can understand the systems like this, the more that we can almost come up with our own tailored recipe for it that's a little bit more specific to us, because we're not all going to be exactly the same in terms of how we prioritize these systems. But I think if we can learn a little bit about them, we can learn what is going to resonate with us a little bit more. Yes, and I think that's where it really helps to understand each of these systems and how they operate in terms of our brain chemistry. And if we understand how our patterns of behaviour interact with our brain chemistry, so mind and body, how they interact together, then we're going to be able to be more mindful, more planful, more deliberate in how we look to have a balance between these things and develop our coping approaches. So do you want to just give us a bit of an overview then in terms of how these systems work with our brain chemistry? So let's, for example, start with the drive system. You can look at it and almost see how an emphasis on the drive system has developed over the time because of, for example, productivity and sort of things like this. But I suppose if we were to look at it on an individual level, why is it that we so easily prioritise achievement? Well, I suppose that drive or achievement is to do with trying to achieve any goal. So let's start with the idea of hunting and gathering. If we didn't hunt and gather, we wouldn't survive. So if we look at engaging in a creative pursuit as well, that involves a certain level of drive. If we're trying to solve a problem or achieve anything, so any kind of goal setting, any direction we're going in, anything that we think is important to do, this is all about drive. So it's basically about life activities work activities, family activities, anything that we're doing, but especially if we're looking to achieve some kind of goal, that relates to the drive system. And this is guided by dopamine. So dopamine is the neurotransmitter that relates to reward or anticipation of reward. If you're working on a task and anticipating that once you complete it, you'll get benefit from it or feel good about it in a way that helps you keep on going, that's driven by dopamine. And so that's a very powerful transmitter because many people do things, for example, to leave a legacy, so down the track, even after they've died. Now, dopamine is so strong, it can motivate people to do things in anticipation of benefits that will take place when that person's no longer around. That's how strong dopamine is. And unfortunately, if people don't have some of that satisfaction or sense of achievement or sense of productivity that happens in life that helps lead to that dopamine, people can lead to maybe a bit of a false dopamine high, such as an addiction. Addictions work on releasing dopamine, a sudden surge of dopamine, but it's like an artificial level of dopamine, if you like, and that can disrupt also people's drive for achievement, which is more natural. And so I imagine that's where people talk about the idea of being a workaholic. I imagine that almost relates there in terms of it potentially is a biochemical addiction in some ways. Well, when you think about it, it will be. Because if someone's a workaholic, they're going to keep on going through adversity. They can keep sticking at it. They can keep on getting up at 4.30 in the morning and answering emails at 11 o'clock at night, if you like, and feel very rewarded along the way. And that can be very satisfying in a certain way but it can have some aspects that are a bit like an addiction because the clue is it's not so much in balance. Other things might give, relationships might give, physical health over time might give. So it's about getting things in balance. 
And it's interesting at the moment as well, because I think with so many people working from home, it can be a little bit harder to demarcate between the two. So like I know I'm finding myself a little bit, you almost got nothing to do. So you find yourself working a little bit more than you would have at other times. So that's where I think it is really important to be looking at this sort of stuff. But as I mentioned earlier, it's potentially an area that I may not have necessarily had a natural strength in. But if we look at the soothing system now, how does the soothing system relate to our brain chemistry? Okay, now with the soothing system, and that can be nurturing others, but also we're talking particularly about self-soothing in this situation too, allowing oneself time to rest, allowing oneself time for leisure. Now, the soothing system will involve oxytocin, So if we give someone a hug or receive a hug, that releases oxytocin. Also, having pets is very good for this. When you pat a dog or your pet dog or have your cat sitting on your lap, that will help release oxytocin. We've talked in the past, I think the term zoea is about the well-being benefit from interacting with pets. And this is one of the ways that will help. It's a way of activating our self-soothing system, our soothing system. And also I imagine serotonin, which is a calming kind of neurotransmitter. That will be involved in that system as well. And one other thing I might add to that is this is where there's a benefit from routines. We talked about routines recently, including on the episode of Not Just Genes, the idea of how do we find routines and balance in our life as well as engaging activities. Well, if our routines support productive work, if you like during the daytime or certain hours, for example, and then we stop and we have a transition For example, we might change our clothes or go out into the garden and then engage in leisure time and then later on have time preparing for sleep and give ourselves enough time for sleep. If we get a balance with our routines, that in itself is going to help get a balance between the drive system and the self-soothing system. Well, it's interesting that you even hear kind of mooted at the moment the idea of whether it be going to a four-hour work week or a six-hour work day and Part of, I imagine, the thinking behind that is to ensure a bit more of a balance with these sort of stuff and ensure that potentially the prioritisation of work is not necessarily as emphasised. Yes, and I think with these things is that there'll be no right and wrong. Like you were describing earlier, it's partly about our own recipe. So, for example, I would think that if at certain times I was meant to work a four-hour workday, That might actually be a little bit frustrating if you were planning to do a lot of activity in a certain area or complete a task that might take eight hours or something like that. But then you hope that at other times you have a holiday, you have a break, you have time off in the evening, you have time on weekends to recuperate. So there's no exact answer with this or there's no exact kind of number of hours a week it's worth working or number of hours a day. It's for each of us, but it's finding a balance with these things and watching out for that tendency to overdo the drive. Well, one thing I find really interesting is I believe it was Microsoft recently, since everyone's been working from home, they've actually gone to a four-hour work week, like a suggested four-hour work week in the interests of productivity. So obviously, they're going to be making kind of corporate decisions in terms of trying to get the most value for the shareholders. So they wouldn't necessarily be doing that as a generous gesture to their workers to thank them for many things, I'm sure. But it's interesting that they recognise that in the interest of productivity, having more of that balance is actually better. 
That is very interesting, isn't it? And that really reflects a cultural change. If you get corporations starting to wonder about these things and openly experiment with them and sometimes find that working a little bit less in terms of hours can actually help productivity, it just shows how much in the past we've tended to get that a little bit out of balance and how much people are more mindful and thinking about these issues now. And so I suppose with the first two systems, it seems to me there's a little bit of an element of the drive system maybe being a little bit like the accelerator and the soothing system maybe being a little bit like the brakes in a situation. But where does the threat system come into this? Okay, well, normally how the threat system works is maybe like an animal, how it's meant to work, is when we're under threat, for example, a deer is chased by a tiger, once the deer gets to safety and then maybe is at a watering hole, the deer will completely calm down. And so even though the deer was fighting for its life not long ago or running for its life, then soon after there can be this balance and recuperation happening very quickly. But what can happen with people if we get our patterns out of balance? Too much drive. So getting caught up with being over-conscientious, over-ambitious, pushing ourselves too hard, working too many hours, expecting ourselves to be right on top of things, and not enough of the soothing, not enough leisure, time out, allowing oneself to be vulnerable, accepting support from others or seeking support from others, then people will be chronically stressed. And if we're chronically stressed, we're reacting as though we're continuing to be chased by a tiger or a lion. You know, continually there's this alarm system going off and this would lead to the release of not only the brain neurotransmitter norepinephrine, which is related to adrenaline, but also the hormone cortisol. So cortisol is a hormone that's released which helps if we're in persistent danger in different ways like it helps with things like blood clotting and things like that. However, if cortisol is persistent, it leads to many different types of health problems. And so part of the problem is if we're continuing the drive, not enough soothing and out of balance much of the time, then we're going to be having too much cortisol with the complications that that leads to. And so cortisol is what they refer to as the stress hormone, isn't it? So is it just persistent or long-lasting stress that leads to the release of cortisol? Or, for example, if we're like a little bit kind of stressed with work, but spoken a little bit on the podcast before about how you can have a little bit of good stress in some ways. So is it mainly that bad stress that's associated with cortisol release? Yes, I think it's if we're feeling overwhelmed. If we're feeling threatened, unsafe and overwhelmed. But the problem is with human beings is if we're worried about something... And so we're persistently thinking of what might go wrong in the future. Now, it might be a financial worry or a worry about what people think of us or a worry about whether we've done a job well enough. Now, our body will not necessarily differentiate between these kind of worries or sense of threat of disapproval or failure and the threat of running away from a lion. So our body's got similar kind of mechanisms for dealing with repeated stress or feeling overwhelmed or a sense of threat, but this can be triggered by ongoing worries. 
And so if we have persistently high levels of stress, and so that tends to relate to ongoing higher levels of cortisol, that actually leads to a range of physical and mental health symptoms such as fatigue and irritability and headaches and anxiety, depression, even weight gain. But apart from that, it works the opposite to neurogenesis. For example, we've talked before how with physical exercise and also novelty or managing with moderate stress and achieving, solving problems and things like that, that actually leads to the development of new brain cells and connections between brain cells or neurogenesis. But elevated levels of cortisol actually kill off new brain cells and connections between them. So it actually interferes with our memory and learning. It works the opposite to neurogenesis. And that's where if people are chronically stressed, it'll be difficult for them to learn and retain new information. Well, it's interesting. I suppose if we go back to that car analogy that I was speaking about before. So correct me if I'm wrong here, but I'm almost starting to think of things in terms of the drive system is almost a little bit like the accelerator. The soothing system is a little bit like the brake And the threat system is a little bit like the signs on the road potentially telling us where to go. But if there's too many signs on the road, then how on earth are we going to travel in any direction if, for example, it's telling us to go left here, right there, left here, right there? How are you going to get in a straight line in that situation? So is it a little bit like that in the sense that if we have too much cortisol, if we have too much threat, it's almost a little bit harder to implement our drive system because it's harder to almost find some direction around that. Yes, it certainly would be hard to find direction. Also, I think the notion of overheating to some extent, like a system becoming overheated. And so that's where, like, sometimes you need to take time out to cool down or machinery. You need to allow it to cool down. But also, all these different signs, as you're describing, not sure which way to go. Again, if we have routines in place, if we've got broad routines that work for us and roles, if we organise our life around certain kind of roles, our work roles and the different tasks that we have that way, our roles at home, if we have our role functioning working well, so we have productive challenges to be involved with, we have our routines working out a certain way, so we don't have to get up in the morning and figure it out step by step every day. That would be pretty demanding. The more we've thought about our broad patterns and set our overall direction, then the decisions that we make can be lesser, more minor or even less frequent kind of decisions. And then we can hopefully focus mainly on the kind of creative tasks or the most productive things that we're trying to do without getting too distracted by other worries or lesser things. Well, it's interesting and I think Part of the reason that we're speaking about today's episode in the broad context of self-compassion is because as we've touched on a little bit, I think potentially there's some organic magnets, for lack of a better term, in terms of looking at the drive system and the threat system, in terms of those systems are going to be implemented without us being as deliberate about it. But I think the soothing system, maybe this is evidenced a little bit by the existence of burnout maybe we have to be a little bit more deliberate in order to get the most out of that system in the way that we would the others. Yes, and that's where, in a psychological sense, we would mainly talk about self-compassion because self-compassion looks to activate our soothing system. And it works in this way. There are basically three elements to self-compassion. First of all, to acknowledge difficulty, to be able to allow yourself to be vulnerable and say, hey, I'm having a hard time here. I'm actually finding this situation difficult. Step number two is acknowledging what we call common 
humanity. Okay, it's understandable that I'm finding it difficult at the moment. Anybody might. It's not my fault that I'm finding it difficult. It's that I'm human. Everyone has their limits. And so it's understandable that I'm finding that the demands on me are outstripping my resources at the moment. And the third thing is self-soothing. Looking at some kind of way that you can improve your situation. Now, sometimes that might be also improving a situation by drawing on other kind of supports or resources. But it will often also include some kind of kind self-talk, maybe taking a bit of time out, allowing ourselves breaks, allowing ourselves leisure time, drawing on what kind of assistance that we can. Um, Also, I suppose, maintaining contact with our GP, drawing on what health supports that we might have as well. There are all sorts of things that are involved in improving a situation. But as we've talked about in the burnout episode, it's partly looking to either reduce our demands and bolster our resources, but some of the best resources that we can bolster are the self-soothing ones. And that often might involve something like meditation or yoga, certainly any kind of leisure activity, a creative pursuit or hobby can make a difference that way. But usually some kind of arousal-reducing mechanism will help, and physical exercise can be part of that. Well, I find this a really interesting area because I must admit the first time I ever came across the concept of self-compassion, I thought there was an element of weakness to it. And I suppose where I was coming from was looking at, for example, a whole range of successful sports people who will have that notion of, you know, I'm the hardest person in the world on myself. And in many ways, like that's kind of celebrated, that idea of being super hard on yourself and it leading to achievement in some ways. And I think it's only really been in the last few years that I've been able to almost make that switch in terms of, well, you actually don't get anything out of being hard on yourself. And maybe those people who achieved all of that stuff whilst being hard on themselves, they maybe just found a way to implement self-compassion in other ways. And it's interesting looking at, for example, some of the sports people at the moment who are just the top of the top. And like, for example, Cristiano Ronaldo, I believe, is someone who meditates now. And you see it in AFL footballers who, who are meditating and who are on more about that balance than just about being super hard on yourself because that leads you to, I suppose, feeling the anxiety that's going to motivate you to get up and train as hard as you can. Yes, I think that's been a real trend the last five or ten years for elite footballers and other athletes to look at that mindfulness dimension, the self-compassion dimension, look at the self-soothing side of things in in a range of different ways. And it's interesting you raise that issue of professional athletes because actually some of the most seriously depressed and suicidal clients that I've seen were elite footballers. And these were very high achievers, so we can understand their drive system was, well, through the roof. But where it could be very difficult for some of those athletes was if they became injured and they could no longer achieve in the usual way. And some people for the first time in their life or their experience were going through such a struggle, feeling overwhelmed, feeling all at sea and not knowing how to deal with that and often getting really stuck into themselves, very harshly stuck into themselves because they thought that they should be feeling strong and on top of things and they shouldn't be feeling vulnerable or overwhelmed. And so then it could be a double kind of difficulty, not only the stress in the first place, 
or even the depression in the first place, but then this harsh self-criticism from thinking, I should be beyond this, I should be above this. And when we talked in an earlier episode when I acknowledged having been through a severe depression myself 30 years ago, that's part of where I got stuck in that situation as well. I thought I'd been a psychologist for 10 years, including a senior psychologist for five years. Here I was seriously depressed. How pathetic was that? I should be on top of that. And actually I had to learn to dig deeper and recognise some of that perfectionism and some of that self-criticism that I had and not allowing myself to be vulnerable as I would have allowed other people to be. And that was fortunately then transformative. And I've seen that with many high achievers who've gone through great difficulty, that has been the circumstance that's taught them to stop, step back and to consider more balance in their life. And I think that's where the expression sometimes comes in too, where you fall, there your treasure lies. Often when people have been too driven, where it's really interfered with their relationships in different ways and they've really struggled with feeling overwhelmed, then sometimes people have had to really take stock and find a different way of getting a balance between this, again, self-compassion and drive. Well, I wonder if that's maybe one of the reasons that we, for example, see so many sports stars struggle in the early days of retirement And it's potentially something that we've seen even more in recent years in terms of just the publicity of of some of these struggles. But to me, as we're explaining all of this today, it would be so hard to almost go from 100 to zero in terms of every day you're getting up as an elite athlete and almost every facet of your life is built around achievement. But then to completely switch that off would be so hard. Yes, it would be. And I think part of the answer there too would be in retirement, it might take a while or post one's professional athletic career or sporting career, finding other things that engage the drive system. It might be being a mentor. Certainly many people go into coaching. It might be developing another trade or it might be some other completely different activity. It might be being a mentor for other people. A number of people have gone into the mental health area. Actually, people like Wayne Schwass, for example, who acknowledged that through his entire career, he was experiencing depression. But now he does a lot to help other people and be a model of acknowledging one's vulnerability and looking after one's mental health more. So he's found another kind of drive, if you like, another kind of positive achievement. So any kind of creative pursuits, any kind of work activity, roles that we have in our family, things we do to help other people, things we do to help our community, these are all part of our drive system. So it's not a matter of switching off the drive. It's also finding other ways of finding satisfaction with that. And so I suppose that's where we touched on it at the start in terms of what we're looking at with self-compassion is that active approach. It's not necessarily switching off the drive. It's potentially recognising that the drive system can be boosted if we balance it more with the other systems. So I suppose if we start to look at this idea of self-compassion now, how can we really boost that soothing system? Well, I think that one of the first things is to develop different kinds of ways of reducing arousal. So if we don't have a technique like practicing relaxation techniques, yoga, meditation, mindfulness, engaging in slow breathing activities, as well as maybe building in physical exercise and leisure activities that we know are more broadly relaxing. But I think having activities that can help lower our 
heart rate, slow our breathing, as well as broadly leisure activities that we find relaxing. I think that's one of the main things combined with an attitude of allowing ourselves to be vulnerable, recognising our stress signature, recognising when we're getting those mild stress symptoms that suggest that we might be just getting into that mild range where our demands are outstripping our resources. Then when we reach moderate stress and then when we reach a more advanced or serious stress stage, we need to have ways of then reducing the demands on us, cutting back the hours or bolstering our supports, looking for other people to help us. And I think that's the other thing in help-seeking behaviour. We're acknowledging more as a community how important that is as a skill or as a resource. And we talk about that in terms of youth suicide, a real concern for the community broadly, and the importance of young people learning to seek help. Help Help-seeking is a skill. It's a resource. It's a good thing to do. Often... Males have more difficulty with that, but it's an important thing to learn to do. So allowing ourselves to be vulnerable, having ways of reducing our tension and stress levels and drawing on supports and allowing ourselves to be vulnerable by letting other people know we could do with extra assistance, these are all things that help get more balance with the soothing system. Well, it's interesting. I think one of the reasons potentially that seeking help is such a skill is that there is that element of needing to accept your vulnerability within a situation in order to go to someone for help. And I think it's potentially something that as blokes as well, maybe it's only a little bit more in recent years that we're really learning how to accept that vulnerability a little bit more. Yes, and I suppose it ties in with the broad theme of balance. And as we're talking about this, I think it relates to the broader theme of perfectionism. And coming back to what Tal Ben-Shahar, a positive psychology leader, described as the contrast between perfectionism and optimalism. So perfectionism is when we drive so hard, like as you say, with your foot fully on the accelerator, maybe with the belief that this will help you achieve even more, or you know, do even better or be even more successful on a task or a goal, actually, you're not necessarily more successful. You might blow up. You might not be able to complete the task. You might become overwhelmed. You might drive other people away from you because you're being too hard a taskmaster. There might be all sorts of things going wrong as opposed to optimalism. Optimalism has got the idea of looking for the best balance. So you're still striving, you're still using your drive system, you still want to achieve, you've still got a goal, you might be pursuing a qualification, you know, doing a course, learning a new skill, building a house, you might be doing all sorts of things where putting in more effort rather than less can make a difference up to a point. But beyond a certain point, it's like that curve of arousal and performance. Your arousal goes up, a certain amount, your performance will go up, like you're pushing yourself harder. But then you reach that peak where you push yourself even harder again, your arousal, your muscle tension, your stress levels go up further and your performance will then be dropping and you keep on going and that can lead to you reaching a point where you just can't function properly anymore, where colloquially we might use a term like nervous breakdown or a person might become severely depressed and almost bedridden or the person might just be losing all interest in life or motivation with doing things and just feeling like dropping out of whatever they're doing. That's not too successful. That's not achieving too much. So optimalism 
is about looking to find a range of achievement. And I think in many ways, especially, say, this year, I find myself often encouraging people to aim for 80% of what you think you can realistically manage. Aim for 80%. Certainly, don't aim for 110%. That's not going to work, not in the long run. And if you think you're getting away with that, at what cost? What's interesting, I think the classic example that comes to mind there is leading teams in the AFL, that group that came through a few years ago and worked with a whole range of the clubs. And one of the things that they introduced was that concept of 360 degree feedback. So it was almost a little bit before that time that, you know, sports stars were so celebrated and they were so seen as these almost, you know, demigod figures at times that for this group leading teams to come in and basically have each of the players' teammates kind of tear shreds off him in terms of saying that these are all the things wrong with you, I think that's potentially an example of the shift that has occurred in that sense too, that maybe they recognise that going at 100%, being your own person and, and just having your own sort of drive system doesn't work in that situation. So maybe they tried to introduce a little bit more balance in that way. Yes, and I think one of the things about people learning to receive critical feedback is that people can also see that there are nurturing systems around it. It's actually to help people improve and develop and help people join together better as a team. So I imagine what happens in that situation is people might receive criticism, but by the same token, they understand it's meant to help them get more out of themselves and relate better as a team. And I imagine what people can learn in that situation is an expression that I use, learning to sting Learning from, say, negative feedback or criticism, learning it can sting, meaning it feels really bad but it's fairly short-lived. Afterwards, you're very accepted by the group. Uh, You've got lots of chance to improve. People are showing they're not just trying to rip shreds off you and say you're a terrible person. It's more to give constructive feedback, even if it's uncomfortable. Now, if we can learn to sting from negative feedback, meaning it makes a difference because we do want to improve what we're doing, but by the same token, it's not a lasting, terrible amount of shame. We don't have to feel dreadful forever about it. It doesn't mean that people can't stand us or something like that. I think that's a good skill to learn, and we're more likely to learn that is if we have situations where we do receive some kind of critical feedback, but it's actually ultimately given in a supportive setting. It'll work best when it's supportive because I have known of different situations where I've seen elite footballers and they felt that they were dragged out the front of a group to have shreds torn off them and they'd just be fearful of that Monday morning meeting they'd hate it like talk about cortisol they would have been having the cortisol firing up at that stage whereas I imagine if in a supportive situation people are getting some critical feedback but they know it's meant to help them in some ways as I believe happened for example the team we followed Geelong a number of years ago around 2006 they gave each other this critical feedback in a way that they really got more out of each other and themselves they grouped together even better they would have had even more trust with each other because they could be open with each other next year they won a premiership. 
Well, it's interesting because I think potentially one of the things that they would have been trying to get out of that would be to potentially localize the negative self-talk as well. And so I imagine partly what we're trying to do in terms of that letting it sting is almost localizing the negativity as much as possible. So we're not necessarily not experiencing the negativity in the same way. We're not sort of pulling the wool over our eyes in any situation, but we're looking to recognize it and move on from it. And I wonder if that's where the leading teams model, that's what they were trying to do a little bit in terms of getting everything out there to the fore and then moving on from it. Yes, so it's short and sharp. And if we're going to be critical with ourselves as well, we might as well make it short and sharp, but be supportive to ourselves. You know, if we're going to say, look, I could have done better with this or I'm not happy with how that went, okay, let ourselves sting a bit, but also be supportive towards ourselves because the ultimate thing about self-compassion is treat yourself as you would a friend. Be kind to yourself as you would a friend. Would we say to a friend, that's pathetic, that's hopeless, you should have done that better? Like as if we would. We'd say, yeah, look, I know that didn't work out so well, but look, you know, can you think of how that might have gone better? Can I make a suggestion or something like that? You look to be a little bit supportive as well, but we can be very harsh and critical on ourselves. And it's that tendency to be very heavily self-critical, which is that aspect of perfectionism, which leads it to be the character tray or personality tray, which leads people to be most prone to depression. So it's watching out for that perfectionism. Good to have drive, but balance it out with being fair on ourselves. So hopefully that gives a little bit more of a background to what, certainly what I mean, what we mean by cut yourself some slack. Yes, certainly. And just to, I suppose, expand on that treat yourself as you would a friend idea, one phrase that I've heard that certainly resonates with me a little bit is, what advice would you give someone in that situation? So, you know, at times it can be hard to almost swallow our own medicine at times, but I think having that slight distancing from the situation can almost allow us to look at it and just be a little bit more forgiving with our response to ourselves. Yes, and I suppose uh, that leads on to taking our own advice and walking the walk. We just reflected recently, this has been our 21st episode. We've done one each week for about five months now. So we talked about giving ourselves a couple of weeks off for a break from this podcast. Yeah, and it will just be a short break, of course. But I suppose one of the things that I'm looking forward to is potentially having an opportunity to let the ideas sit a little bit more. It's I don't know about you, Dad, but I've almost found it a little bit frenetic at times that by the time you're really getting your head around a subject, you've got to go on to the next one sort of thing. So it's been really interesting, I think, throughout the podcast to see the way that some of the themes have intermingled together. And I suppose one of the things that I'm looking forward to is maybe having a look back at some of the earlier episodes and re-addressing some of those themes and now having gone through a few more episodes seeing how they relate to each other again yes and I've found that the way that we have done you know so many different topics you know one after the other it does lead to these creative connections between them and I think that's worked out very well but in the meantime having a couple of weeks break yes that will help us regroup and look at what kind of topics that we bring up from here as well and and hopefully it does give people the chance to look back at some of the earlier episodes that we hope also tie in with the theme we've talked about today and and other themes as well. 
And we do have some, I suppose, some exciting news coming up on the podcast. So it is a little bit of a break. We'll call it, you know, a mid-season buy, as I like to refer to it as. And we'll be back with some exciting changes, including potentially getting some more people involved. So we've got the feelers out there with a couple of really exciting interviews, potentially to get some others involved. So really looking forward to bringing you a lot more down the track. I look forward to that too then. Bye, Rowan. <laughs>